Welcome to the broadcast. Today on In Context, we are delighted to have Hannah Stoltz. Hannah is a friend of a dear friend of mine, Tommy Lee. Tommy also serves on the board of In Context, and Tommy and I know each other since Chicago days when we were both at the Moody Bible Institute, and Tommy gave me a short list of people, Michael, you have to have on the program. So I said, well, of course, and Hannah agreed, so we're so grateful to have her today. She is an academic in the field of global supply chain management, and before you tune out or get bored, this is very germane to our situation today. She is a Fulbright scholar to Indonesia. In her previous life, before being an academic, a mom and a wife, she was a soldier with occupational forces in psychological ops, ordinance, and broadcast journalism. The daughter of missionaries who tragically buried their first child on the mission field. Hannah grew up in the paradox of a blue-collar American with a global worldview. What kind of influence did that have on you? What's that like? Yeah, it definitely, you know, is an interesting perspective to grow up with. My dad was a carpenter and a worship pastor. And so very much working class America, uh, which is unusual to grow up working class America with, I think, a global perspective like we did grow up with. I think that's unique to church communities. And so, you know, as a, as a young kid, yeah. you know, I, I loved reading missionary biographies and always dreamt of ways I could serve God globally and really thought that most of the trajectories for that were through, you know, traditional missions in the church and had a huge impact on me as I realized all the different vocational opportunities and the skills and gifts that are unique to each of us that can give us opportunities to serve God all over the world. Now, you went to undergrad where? Remind me. Yeah, I went to Carthage College for my undergrad in southern Wisconsin. And then from there, you went into the Army after college? I actually enlisted right out of high school. I wasn't sure how I was going to pay for college. I'm not as musically okay. gifted as my father and sisters, so the military was a great way for me to get an education. And how long were you in the Army? I spent six years in the military, four in reserves, and two that I worked active duty. Well, thanks for your service. We, Our family has a deep appreciation and love for men and women in uniform, so thanks for that. Your final terminal degree was at University of Knoxville, Tennessee, where you earned your Ph.D. So give our folks a little sample of how Hannah got from enlisted Army, college, and now Ph.D., and what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we all have unique journeys, I think, that looking back in hindsight, we see that hand of God on it along the way. I definitely finished undergrad. I did a degree in political economics in Mandarin and thought that I would work in Asia. And God had other plans for my life through the military, actually had the opportunity to get my MBA. And that was the first time I really realized the impact of business on you know, global development, on opportunities to travel and to really serve people, not just showing up and, you know, and building within church community, but also being able to show up and build job opportunities and life opportunities for people as well. And that really caught my imagination. And so finishing my MBA in, in Mandarin in the late 90s, you can imagine with manufacturing moving to China, there was lots of opportunity in that time to be a Chinese speaking wow. business person. And so I worked in buying. And the interesting thing about working in global supply chain, we're all a lot more aware of supply chains now, I think from the last three years of you know the tumultuous world it has been but you know back then it wasn't as prevalent i think supply chains were growing with the adoption of the internet and technology advancements and 
So working in, in global supply chain management is an area where there's constantly things that can go wrong. And so it was fun and exciting, but then also, you know, when you're running, I was a director of the operations for a small import company and, you know, day in and day out, you're putting out fires. And I really wanted time to think strategically about the impact of our buying in the U.S. when we're moving manufacturing to other places in the world. What's the impact of that on the lives of the people in those nations? How do our buying decisions and our consumption you know, choices in the U.S., how does that impact people around the world. And so I really wanted time to think. And I realized at that point in time, I was, you know, still young, <laughs> that there's only two ways to get paid for thinking. One is 20 years of experience and the other is a PhD. <laughs> so you can guess which route I took. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. In my, in my world, we always said the PhD was just a union card to do what you wanted to do. So yeah, yeah. anyway, just so our listeners don't miss this, you're fluent in Mandarin. I was, I was at one point in time, a few years ago, Wow! I studied towards linguist qualification in the army and completed an undergrad degree in Mandarin, lived some time in China. Goodness. I have a friend that spent 17 years in Taiwan and he said, I spent the first 10 beating my head against the wall to learn language. And he goes, the last seven learned forgetting it. <laughs> <laughs> Our Western brains don't do well with some of these uh, other languages. We share a mutual affection for the book of Proverbs. I'm teaching it right now in our church here at Stonebridge. And one of my penchants and even on one of our podcasts called Ask Dr. E, the questions I get about why isn't Proverbs 31 a woman and a wife? And I've got this whole shtick that I explain. The wisdom is depicted as a woman and the woman is a way. So you have the way of righteousness or the way of evil, the way of the adulteress or the way of the faithful. And I go over and over and over this, but even as recently as probably a week ago, we received an Ask Dr. E question about why are you so bent on Proverbs 31 isn't about a wife. And I go, well, it is, but that's not the point. The point is the culmination of wisdom. So your book on wisdom and business, it was so delightful to read the first excerpt of wisdom-based business because you, you zone in on this and kudos for your homework. I was impressed with your homework in the text. So help our folks understand the way you are parsing wisdom and how you look at that in context of what you're doing. I would say that studying Proverbs 31 has been a joyous decade-long journey that included masters in Bible. So I didn't undertake it lightly to say, okay, this is the way we should be yeah. looking at this scripture. And one of the things I realized pretty early on in reading that scripture and sitting in on Bible studies and, uh, you know, from the context of women's Bible study saying, how do we become this woman? And, you know, at that point in time, I was MBA, had worked in, you know, in business. I was prior service. And as I read that passage, I said, okay, you know, it's, it's the protagonist is a woman and I, I, fine, I get that. But it does seem like there is a lot going on in the scripture that should be very liberating for all of us in the church that we're missing because we read it so literally. That really started a 10 year journey with this passage in digging in and saying, okay, culturally, what does it mean for wisdom to be a woman? And why is wisdom in the marketplace <laughs> making you know, linen and clothing and selling it, which seems to me pretty industrious and entrepreneurial? And why is wisdom not a, a priest or a king or you know, any of the roles that David and Solomon would have set up for us in that time to understand the height of righteousness? And so I love what you say about the way 
I think this is really important that this is a way, it's a juxtaposition between a life lived well and a life lived foolishly. And I definitely think that for believers, for Christians in exploring Proverbs 31, if this is Solomon's height of Proverbs, if this is, you know, that closing stanza, it's a 21 verse acrostic poem. If he is highlighting in it wisdom, who always shows up as a woman in the ancient Near East, in Assyria, and you know, later in Greece, wisdom was always a woman. And wisdom is showing up really in the marketplace, doing entrepreneurial work in a way that honors all the people in her life. And that includes her husband, it includes her children, but it also includes the poor and the needy and her employees. <laughs> and I would say her customers and suppliers. And so it, it shifts it from being focused on, you know, just the women in the church to being a passage that can be a framework and a guide to a life lived well for all believers. And I think that's really important. Scriptures for all of us, all the stories are for everyone. Well, one of the things that, that I've tried to encourage folks is if it's just about a woman particular, why didn't we have 32 <laughs> about a man? You know, and we do have this chiastic bookend of the first and last chapter. Of course, there's a lot of debate about how much of this came from Egypt, which I tend to believe most of what he used was basically Egyptian proverbial language or literature that he then interpreted. Still the Word of God, but the sources are unique in that regard. And it's an extraordinary book, and I appreciate your 10-year commitment to it. Most people read it in one day a month at best. (laughs) (laughs) when they read through the Proverbs. So you make a jump into Christian business. It's more acceptable for women to be in high places of business, but there's still a bit of rancor within evangelical fundamental Bible-believing churches where a woman's place is at home, having children, supporting her wife, and uh, no shortage of those kinds of ministries and women who write about such. And I'm not saying that to disparage them, but obviously you see this differently in the way you not only write, but the way you work. Absolutely. I think if we compartmentalize the passage, and certainly there are things in that passage that I fully embrace as a woman, as a wife, and as a mom. But I do think it's important as well when you go to that passage, the Hebrew term there is eset chayal. And eset doesn't translate directly to wife. It just means woman. And so it really translates to valiant woman. And I love the work of the theologian, Dr. Walters, on this passage. I don't know if you're familiar with his work or not in this space, but he talks about this 21 verse passage as an epic war hymn. And when you read it like an epic war hymn, like, you know, the song of Deborah and, you know, David's songs, and you think of this as a victorious song of, of wisdom and action, I definitely think that we actually mitigate or minimize the impact of this passage for the impact it can have in terms of how we compete. And and business is about competing, right? It's about gaining market share. It's about having access to resources. And really business is the modern day way of growing an economy that in the ancient times would have been grown through war, <laughs> right? Like if you wanted to grow yeah. your resources, your land, all of that right. in ancient times, it, you know, It was done through battle and through gains that way. And in a global economy today, we actually see that the largest companies in the world are bigger than the smallest nations. So we've shifted in a way that we see resources gained globally from a nation kind of mindset to a corporate and business mindset. And And that's where global impact and culture and economies are really being built. Of course, nations play a role in it, but 
man, businesses are really shaping the world we live in. Let's jump and talk a little bit about work ethic. I just finished a message out of Proverbs, and what struck me, Hannah, was when you study work and what surrounds it in the wisdom literature corpus, it really is more talking about a sluggard. It doesn't elevate work as a virtue like we might see even in, in Pauline theology where he says, you know, pretty categorically, if he won't work, don't yeah. let him eat. And we have to dig a little deeper to see the value in what we do. Ecclesiastes, of course, will have it, but it's almost a subset of the best you have in life is to work, to eat, to enjoy the stuff of life under this fallen condition which we're in. But I found it striking in my own study that it's more, this is what a sluggard's like. They're lazy, indolent, unreliable, untrustworthy. They're dishonest. They're schemers. They're scammers. They're trying to make money quickly. But it doesn't say this is what work and the ethic of work is like. Your thoughts on that? Did you make the same observation? Yeah. And I, I think when you read Proverbs, I love Proverbs. There's not very many you know passages in scripture that you can really take a lot of life on where you get to say, you know, oh, you get to really call people fools. <laughs> You know, Solomon is really does have that that juxtaposition of the fools and the wise. And Lady Wisdom herself is out in the streets calling people like, don't be so foolish, you simpletons, yeah. right? Uh, and so there are so many examples, really practical examples throughout the book about what is foolish and who is a fool. I'm definitely a broken record. I apologize for this, but I do love Proverbs 31, 20, you know, verses 10 through 31 so much because I think it in a way, it is the case study that you don't necessarily see the rest of the book, which is, you know, talking about the sluggards and the dog returning to his vomit and all the exciting passages throughout Proverbs that we love to quote. And it really, when you look at Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, you know, I agree. There's so much in that book that says, I love Proverbs 20. There's a lot in Proverbs 20 that talks about pricing and not cheating mm -hmm. people. You know, how do you weight your scales? And, you know, we don't, we yeah. don't weight scales as much anymore when we think about price tags, but it's definitely comes through a lot there. And so there's a lot more of the negatives, kind of like the don'ts. And then we get to the end of the book and we get to Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, which is a standalone chapter, you know this, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And Lady Wisdom shows up and I love the part of her work ethic that's exemplified. It doesn't juxtapose it to the fool anymore. She shows up rising when it's still dark to prepare tasks for her servants. So she's actually really a servant leader and making sure that her employees understand their jobs, they come to work, they have tasks cut out for them for the day. We see it in how she girds herself with strength. We see it in how her product is both excellent yes. and profitable. And beauty, and, and, and beauty. Yeah. I love that, it's strength and beauty. It's, just, it's not just this warrior mean person, it's a beautiful presentation of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, her product is, you know, is beautiful as well, right? So there's a lot of themes in there of her being, you know, it's, it's not that she's not feminine. It's that she's valiant and feminine, right? For all and throughout Proverbs, that is, you know, the, the life of the sluggard, we see some exemplary work, work ethic as the book closes. Give me uh, Hannah's thumbnail about a work ethic. What is a work ethic? Give me three or four or five bullets. Yeah, my favorite way of thinking about a work ethic is actually going back to Deuteronomy. And we know the passages, right? That's the two greatest commandments. Love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. Um, this funny Hebrew word that shows up that's miod. And a lot of times we translate it as love God with all of your, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, 
right? And that is that is a way of translating the Hebrew word miot. But miot actually means resources. And so when you think about it, not just as your strength, which is a resource, like if you're working in an agricultural, you know, society and economy, like your strength is going to determine how much, you know, how many crops you can sow and reap in a year. But in a modern day world, when we think about strength as being, you know, maybe maybe more along the line of strengths finders, where it's your skill sets, it's your spiritual gifts. And how do you love God with those? Well, this is where our work ethic is. You know, Pauline, Pauline texts, they call us to this as well. They say that, you know, do everything you do with excellence as if you're working into the Lord. And I think this ties back to what Jesus is calling us to. You know, those two commandments where he says, love God with all your heart, with all your mind. And if we're thinking about loving God with all of our resources, we're loving God with, with our work. And so our work becomes, and the excellence of our work becomes an expression of love. And not only do we get to love God through our work, but then the second commandment, you know, it's like it, the second commandment is to love our neighbor, you know, and Jesus qualifies it as he's loved us, yes, yes. <laughs> which is a, that's a tall order in terms of, you know, love levels. And, and our biggest opportunity to love people, you know, the one place in our life that we spend the most time with people is when we show up at work. And so you think we get to love God with it and we have so much opportunity to love our neighbor and love people around us. So if we're going to think about a work ethic, I think we have to ask ourselves, when we show up in our work, or is it excellent? And are people feeling an expression of God's love because we showed up there? And as Christians, we should be asking that about our work ethics every day. I read a book years ago, Albin Group, maybe. It was called Leadership and Self-Deception. Some of these business books get into this sort of Lencioni motif where they tell these fables and stories. And I'm like, just tell me the principle. <laughs> you know? I don't really care about this fictional experience of meeting a guy on a bus. But anyway, leadership and self-deception follows a guy around. And what the big takeaway is, you know, I, I lead a group. People know that I don't like Peter. Peter knows I don't like Peter knows that I don't like him. All of Peter's friends know I don't like him. And yet we have this dance in conference rooms and in meetings and whatever, and these overstatements and these barbs and jabs. And his manager is basically saying, everybody knows that about you. You think you're getting away with it. And until you resolve that, you'll never be a good leader. And it was one of those books I used to give to, you know, staff or when I had a cabinet where you know, I give it to them and they would all be so convicted. They didn't want to talk about it because it was so transparent that you'll never be as good a leader as you think you are. And I mean, even my last two leadership roles you know, there were all kinds of conflicts, Hannah, with people that we were supposed to be on the same team, on the same board with the same objectives, personalities, preferences, the way things should be executed. And, you know, every personality type has an opinion on one. If it's a widget, there's eight opinions on how that widget should be manufactured and produced. And it's the old swing that never swang. Remember that cartoon? And it's a picture mm -hmm. of, a you know, there's six different Impertures of a swing and what the customer wanted was a tire swing, but all the other deliverables were terrible. None of them would work. And so I'm prattling a bit, but setting it up with, you know, this idea that, I mean, your, your book about wisdom-based leadership, do you address this and how, how does a person think about it? Whether I have a superior or I'm the superior, that we don't get along with some folks. And as Christians, we're called to love. We're called to be peacemakers if possible. Long question, sorry. No, I love it. And, and leadership, you know, it was coming up through the army. Yeah. <laughs> you learn a very different model of leadership. Now, and, and they do they do teach servant leadership in the military. And um, 
I, I spent, I ended up spending my entire military career enlisted, but I did go through ROTC and um, trained to be an officer and, and shifted gears. But, you know, when you come through that, it's a very different system yeah. because there is, you know, an understanding of authority, there's command, right? A chain, literal chain of command, and it's a very different space. And uh, I had a really humbling experience in the last five years of coming into team leadership where I wasn't just working with PhDs, I was working with people at different levels and different skill sets. And realized for the first time that, you know, you really do need to learn leadership techniques and it's really important. And we need to undertake to understand how do we lead different people well. And so this was one of the things that I explored in one of the chapters of my book. And there's a lot of different languages out there that I love. I leaned into the language of Isaiah mainly because I do think that we want to model everything we do after Jesus. And in the, in the book of Isaiah, of course, you know, it starts off with talking about the king, the Messiah who's coming and about verse, about chapter 40, it shifts from a king language to servant language. And the beautiful thing in a lot of the research I've done, and I'm very, you know, leery of proof texting and, sure. and eisegesis versus exegesis and that we're really faithful to text. And so I think a lot of my perspective in understanding Scripture is scripture is true. And then there is revelations of scripture that play out in the world around us. So I want to dig into the truth of scripture, which says Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And what is the evidence that we see of this in God's creation? And it's really, really unique. Uh, in the book, I tried to find, not find biblical evidence for principles I cared about, yeah. but to find evidence in business and in the world for truths that God states. You know, if, if, if that yeah. makes sense, you know, from the mindset and the thinking behind that. And yeah. and so when you look at servant leadership and I know servant leadership is a secular idea, it didn't it didn't come from a faith perspective, but it definitely demonstrates evidence of, I think, what Jesus was teaching. And when you start digging into what servant leadership is, it's components of things like listening, <laughs> of having empathy for your followers, of, you know, are you helping your employees and your, your coworkers to be healed? Healing is an important part of servant leadership, that broken people are never going to perform well without, you know, having a journey of healing. You know, we're never going to be perfectly unbroken, but, you know, being healthy is really important. And so you start digging into all those components. And I was really convicted that I had actually neglected my own study of leadership. And so we do have a responsibility for leading people to, you know, there's, there's lots of different tools like doing 360s and assessments that can help us understand how people view our leadership, but we do need to be aware of it because we, it's, it's another area that God gives us stewardship. He gives us stewardship of people. And so if we have stewardship of people, we will probably have to give an account yes. <laughs> for how we led those people. And I think it's, maybe foolish to not want to know how we are doing. So I'll, I'll finish with this because I don't want to, I don't want to go too long in my answer, but we've worked with through the, the center at Wheaton. We've worked with about we're on our sixth company that we've done in-depth studies with. And one of the first things that we measure within an organization is servant leadership. And we measure it at the management level, you know, and up. So how do all the leaders think they're doing? What's their aspirations of being a servant leader? And then we actually, also survey all of the employees, you know, frontline, mid-level, and how do they feel like they're being led? And the interesting thing here, Michael, to your point earlier, is managers always desire to be, well, 
always, predominantly desire to be servant leaders. Most of the time in our data think they're better servant leaders than their employees think they are. And, you know, so we always have that divide between like, I think I'm serving my employees and your employees are like, yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> so there's a lot of opportunity to listen. Let me ask a, a specific question. So very specifically in, in a context, what does a servant leader do that demonstrates to his or her reports that they are servant oriented? There's eight dimensions. I don't think we need to get into all eight, you know, technical dimensions of it, but I will say the most important question you should be asking yourself if your employees answer yes to this, it is the like the pivot point for being a servant leader. And it's simple. Do you put other people before yourself? Does your manager put you first? Or do they seem like they're out for themselves? Because one of one of the things that, that struck me in one of the churches I served when we would we had a team leadership, ostensibly, it was called a team. Uh, the table always leaned a certain direction to key individuals, be that as it may. But if we had a new project, a new idea, and we might kick it around as a team, and we agree, yes or no, we would do X or Y or Z. And then we had, okay, you're going to run point person on this, and these are the people that will help you. And it was my experience in that organization, there were always a handful that were like, how can I help? vis-a-vis those that had 18 objections about anything. And so you have these unhealthy alliances within an organization where, well, if so-and-so leans heavy on this part of the table slash ministry, then all those who are aligned with so-and-so can't do this new or changed thing. And, And I found it fascinating, even though that organization was fairly young, the resistance to what were very healthy changes often and, and creative ideas that others brought to the table where we're ostensibly working as a team, but then you have what I would call unkindly obstructionists to change. And it was like, okay, what's the stakeholder here? Why is this person fighting so hard against this? It doesn't really impact their budget or their ministry or their time, but they just don't like the person or the project. So I had a much simpler way than your eight spheres to look at it. But I'm just, I think that's where a lot of us live, Hannah, is we live in these ensconced alliances, allegiances and companies, and whether it's altruistic and, and the best idea and you vet it and you listen and you're willing to clean the bathrooms, there's still this resistance to leadership for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, for sure. And I I do think there's this great line that my dad always said to me, you know, if you have a ministry or if you have a career or a job or really anything in your life and you think you're doing it for God, but you aren't willing to lay it down, if something better or a better idea comes along, then maybe you aren't really doing it for God. Maybe you're doing it for yourself. And, you know, I think there's a lot of challenge in that because I, I think the world tells us to live in a space of FOMO. I think marketing does that, you know, that fear of missing out, that fear if, if you know, somebody else is more anointed, is, is more gifted, that somehow that will reduce our own opportunity for serving God or for meaning or purpose. And I think that as Christians, we have to let go of scarcity mindsets. And we have to realize that our God is the God of all of creation. He owns the cattle on a, I don't know, is it a thousand hills? A lot of hills. And if we 
our hoarding, <laughs> both like our ministries, the, our resources, whatever it is. If we if we have a hoarding kind of scarcity mindset, then we really do rob the kingdom of multiplication and growth. You have to be willing to like let go to invest and to lay things down in order to see you know God's kingdom grow. And I think that's it's a big challenge in our culture because we definitely have an individual property rights mindset. It's mine. I earned this. This is my territory. I'm going to protect it. And that's not how Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. <laughs> and uh, he makes it real hard for us. Simple, yeah. but personally hard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Well, let me move ahead. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, supply chain. It's a massive topic. We could probably spend several hours discussing it. This is your wheelhouse. In the last 24 months, this term has become the nomenclature of the culture, and everything's blamed on supply chain from I can't get a part for my car because of supply chain. It's almost an excuse. Yeah. We have a friend who's a builder in Georgia, and 18 months ago, he, he builds these pretty high-end cabins. We were talking to him, and he said, there's no supply chain problem. There's none at all. It's all about middle men handlers who want a larger piece of something. And in his case, he was getting a kind of wood from the West Coast. He goes, I've been there. There's more wood than they can ever sell. It's cut. It's hewn. It's ready to be shipped. The supply chain isn't broken. What's broken is that people are greedy. And again, that's perhaps an oversimplistic uh, observation. But my point is, I think a lot of folks felt that way and feel that way today. Why are eggs so expensive? Well, okay, you can blame it on bird flu and the government mandating we, you know, we have to destroy so many laying hens, or you can blame gasoline on the Keystone Pipeline type things. So, so give us the primer, Dr. Stoltz's primer on understanding supply chain and how it really impacts uh, my grocery cart or my gas tank or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So with supply chain management, if you want to think about it most simply, uh, it, it has four components to it. Um, the first is planning. You know, what's what's the product you make? Then the second is how are you going to source it? Like, you know, where is it going to come from? Where are you going to get all the raw materials you need? Are you going to buy it made? Then you think about how are you going to deliver it to market? Then that final loop that companies sometimes forget to think about strategically is how do you manage it, you know, post use, like whether it's returns or, you know, customer service, you know, in use for the customer. So really, Supply chain management, when you when you think about it, is pretty simple. It's just having a plan to balance supply and demand. And when you put that in a global context, the, the easiest supply chain is the shortest and the most local. The hardest supply chain to manage is the global and the extended one. Uh, and because you have so many more players, because you have so many more people, like your friend's example, along the way that find little opportunities to kind of get a bigger cut or, you know, to take advantage of, you know, maybe a, a transactional uh, contract or something, you know, where they can up prices. And and so what you see when you have a disruption that was unplanned for, like like COVID, like gasoline, like all of the different things we've seen in the last three years, um, everybody throughout the supply chain will react. And if they aren't collaborative, if they aren't, you know, in alliance, it works just like that, that group that you worked with in that church community or in that nonprofit room where everybody creates their own alliances or out for their own interests and they don't communicate with each other well. And it creates like these spikes all throughout the supply chain that get you know incrementally worse as you get further away from the market of everybody reacting 
without enough information to what they think is going on in the market without talking to each other. And so that's really what we've seen a lot of over the last few years. So the supply chain 101 is have a plan, figure out the supply you need to get it, you know, to, to make the product and then meet demand you have in the market and how do you get it there. So I love this. This shows up in Proverbs 31. You know, I'm a Proverbs 31 nerd and I'm going to bring everything back to Proverbs 31. And we see the whole, we call this the <laughs> score model. We see the whole thing there, right? She's got customers in the marketplace. Okay. We know that her business was bigger than just her household because she was sourcing flax and wool. She was going into the market to buy raw materials. Then she was transforming those materials into clothing and into linen garments, into linen hangings and sashes. And then she was selling them in the marketplace and she was doing it profitably. And she was doing it with enough profit that she was expanding her business into, you know, vineyards and, you know, I guess wineries. I don't know. <laughs> so we see actually that model show up in scripture as well. My wife the other day was commenting about doing her, our taxes and, She's the numbers person in our relationship, and she came downstairs all heavy-hearted. And I said, what's wrong, honey? She goes, oh, I'm just depressed. Why are you depressed? She goes, you know that our our heating electric bill has gone up 30% from last year this time. And she has the bad habit of checking our retirement accounts. And she goes, and then our retirement accounts have dropped 30%. And, you know, so I'm trying to be the consoling husband going, honey, we've been charmed. We've been blessed. God's taken care of us. We've, we've done things that very few people get to do and don't compare ourselves to others. And of course that it's very helpful when my wife says things like that to me, <laughs> she's like, Oh, why do I worry? Of course not. You know, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic, but you know, I think a lot of uh, people in middle Tennessee is where we live. A lot of people feel this and we're like, how do we get ahead of this Hannah? Because Sure, we don't have any debt. We pay everything's paid off. We live under our income. We give. We invest. All those good biblical things, but people are watching their lives change radically. So, what does wisdom tell us? Well, I think wisdom tells us that we should laugh with confidence at the future, and also that we should be like the ant who is prepared as well. And so, we do the work and. Wisdom also really calls us to have an eternal mindset and where worry creeps in where, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that worries aren't real and bills aren't real and they aren't real concerns that we should have. And we do need to be weighing, but I will say that if we get caught up in a short-term mindset, we can lose sight of the eternal story that we're a part of. And, you know, from an economic standpoint, we have business cycles you know, all the time, all throughout history, we have, we have business cycles. We go through, you know, economic growth, recession, hopefully it doesn't go into depression, recovery, economic growth. Like we see those cycles over time. And I think, you know, especially in the U S we live in a, a three month mindset in terms of business and business reporting. And so it's easy yeah. to get caught up in short term output and short term data, short term numbers that can really keep us up at night. And, I love in Proverbs 31, it also talks about that, that no one in her household fears for the seasons, right? They're not, they're not afraid of the winter. And, you know, this is like the same context of we have seasons in business as well. We have economic seasons and we need to be prepared. We need to have, you know, margin and plan for, you know, to be profitable, to do your investments and all of that. Right. But realize there's going to be seasons of harvest seasons of famine seasons of, of plenty seasons where we, you know, really do cry out to God and say, how am I going to pay my bills? <laughs> but there's seasons. 
we don't have to be afraid of them, that God's hand is still there. His provision is still there. And I do really believe in that, that mindset of saying like we work through it and there's multiple opportunities. God has a bigger picture in, you know, in play. And um, maybe if you're on a down market, don't touch your investments if you can, because <laughs> they'll come back up. It'll be okay. If you live long enough, see, you're still young, so your runway is longer. Uh, you know, it's funny. I just finished a message on Proverbs 6, 6 to 11 about the ant and about what's going on in the, in the Semitic mind at that time and how he's, you know, not telling the video game inoculated kid to get off the couch and look, but it's just to make very basic observations about the smallest creature. I mean, symbolically, a very small creature that God has designed to work and care for itself and its queen. And I was telling the story about as kids growing up in Houston, we would torment the ant beds. We'd pour things on them, you know, and, and whatnot. And the next day, that ant bed would have relocated four, six feet away and be back in operation. And it was such illustrative to me about, you know, you just keep working. You just keep doing the next thing. You just stay faithful. And I tell our folks all the time, smile at the future because we know, you know, the ultimate king. Let, let's talk a little bit about how you look at a worldview of Christian and business in the next decade. Because that's kind of your your focus. I mean, this is your training, your wiring, your experience. So what do you look at? What gives you hope? What gives you pause? When I look at, especially in the global space and how connected we are globally, sure. I don't think capitalism is perfect. I don't think businesses are perfect. But we have seen over the last several decades that the opportunities of globalization have helped more and more people come out of poverty globally than we've ever seen before in human history. So there is something really powerful to a, you know, a business globalizing and creating opportunities for employment, creating opportunities for, you know, when a, a company globalizes, you know, even like with a company coming back into the U.S., maybe you've heard these stats, like when a, manu when a, a manufacturing plant opens in the U.S., it's not just a job to so the manufacturing plant, it creates an ecosystem of jobs around it. And so when, you know, when a company has a global strategy, when they, you know, branch out into an emerging economy, I've been really privileged to spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia in the last five years. And, you know, there's, there is so much entrepreneurship, there's so much hope and, you know, it's, there's always opportunism in it, right? There, there, there's people that are going to take advantage of things, but there's also opportunity, you know, when, when there is globalization for jobs and industries to pop up around the world that provide dignity in work and options in work. And, and that is really exciting to me, that we are in, a, in a, a world today where we have so much opportunity for positive impact. Now, what I'm watching for, when you have that positive impact, and you know, um, we're also in an era of, of, of nationalism. We're in an era of yeah. a lot of tensions. And I'm a patriot. I served, you know, I served in the, the military. Um, I love, I love our country, but I'm also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, when I think about globally, the opportunities for having impact, they go beyond national borders and they require us as Christians to think about how we can have impact, how our decisions impact other people while we also steward what we have here. And I do think that there are some challenges in terms of how we work globally, you know, in terms of, you know, trade tensions and, you know, different things that are going on around the world. 
And so I think it's going to be difficult to navigate, maybe a little bit more difficult in the next 10 years than it has been in the last 20 in terms of what we've seen in globalization. But so I think I think there's going to be a lot of, of challenges, but there's so much opportunity. And it gets me really excited when we think about economic development, when we think about creating opportunities for people to come out of poverty, to have opportunities for their families, for their children to be educated and to eat, that business can provide opportunities to people when it's done with, you know, ethically, when it's done with good stewardship, when it's done with a win-win mindset. And there is just so much opportunity to see growth globally if we do it with a stewardship mindset. Does that make sense? 100%. Hannah J. Stoltz, author of Wisdom-Based Business, Applying Biblical Principles and Evidence-Based Research for a Purposeful and Profitable Business. Zodderman Publication, you can find information in the show notes. You need to acquire the book if you're uh, entrepreneurial, if you uh, manage people, if you own a company, if you work in a context where you report to folks over you. This is a book to get you thinking beyond just the popular business books that we so often see on the shelf. So Hannah, thanks for your work, your labors, your research, your study. Uh, Thanks for your service to our country and uh, blessings on the next chapter of your life. Can't wait to see how God continues to use you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.